Moraine Valley Library. It's my pleasure to introduce the one and only and really awesome, uh, Mr. Jason King. And Jason. Hello, everybody. Jason is a man of many talents. So he's a math professor, he's a professor of geography, and he knows a little bit about everything, it seems. If whenever I have a question or something, I can ask Jason. And he's spoken on topics as wide as Taiwan and China conflict, the Ukraine. We're having things with Vlad Dracula and a lot of different items. And we really appreciate Jason. So thank you so much. Thank and you I hope you enjoy your presentation today. Hello, friends. It's so good to see all of you. Good afternoon. So what we're going to talk about today is the real historic Vlad Dracula. We all know a little bit about Count Dracula, right? This is kind of the way that I feel when October 1st rolls around. I start getting ready for some fun stuff and, of course, some candy. One of the big parts about this is, of course, the legend of vampires. And when talking about this, the big major one is Vlad Dracula. Might eat Pez, might eat blood, I don't know. But the actual person of Dracula himself is kind of shrouded in mystery. So we're going to talk a little bit about the historic person of Dracula. Then we're going to talk about the vampire myths and where they come from. One of the big problems we run into with this is we don't know a whole heck of a lot about them. 15th century Romanian history doesn't have a whole lot of good sources behind it. The sources that we do have were all very, very much not objective. They were telling a story for a particular reason. So I'm going to give you what we know for sure, and I'm going to give you some things that maybe we know, and we'll go from there. Um, hopefully we'll have some time for questions at the end, but if you have like a deep burning question, please don't hesitate to say anything, and, and I'll do that to help you out. This is the picture we have of him. This is it. We don't have a whole lot of other ones. I don't know, kind of looks like Super Mario a little bit, except with the, the mullet going on. Kind of a handsome person, I guess. This is a story that's got everything in it. It's got tales of horror built within it, insofar as they're opposite of what we know about him as a vampire. It has heroism. We're going to learn about the time that Dracula ran into a camp full of people that were trying to kill him to single-handedly try to destroy the Ottoman Empire. And he failed. We're going to hear about unreliable journalism. You've heard all about, if you know anything about Dracula the Man, you probably know him as Vlad Sepish, Vlad the Impaler, right? We're going to learn a little bit about what we know about him as far as a man who was exceptionally cruel and where we know those stories from. We're going to learn about betrayal. This is a story full of sudden but inevitable betrayals, right? We have him versus John Hunyadi, the first leader of uh, Hungary. We have him against Mehmed II, the conqueror, one of the main people in the Ottoman Empire, the one that captured Constantinople for the Ottoman Empire. We have Matthias Corvinus, the one that came after John Hunyadi. And then we have his brother, Radu the Handsome. We have no pictures of him whatsoever, so this is one that people think, maybe he looked like this? We have no pictures, so we have no clue whatsoever. Betrayal of all of them, right? Sometimes Dracula did the betraying, sometimes people betrayed him. We have straight-up enemies. There's him versus the guy on the right, 
Vladislav II. This is literally the only engraving we have of Vladislav. I don't know about you. Uh, kind of looks like a tadpole human, maybe? I don't know. Um, one of the leaders of House Donesti, who is one of the big things that Dracula was fighting against for virtually the entirety of his three separate reigns. He was leader of Wallachia three different times. First, let's talk about the geography of the region that we know that Dracula hung out in. It was not Transylvania. This is an area that in geography we call the Shatter Belt. And the reason we call it the Shatter Belt is, well, you'll find out in a second. This is where Romania is. Zooming in a little bit closer, this is where Romania is in Europe. So it's got a teeny weeny little spot on the Black Sea. But other than that, the thing that really focuses what Romania is, is that large mountain range called the Carpathian Mountains, separating essentially one aspect of Romania from the other one. In the West, this is an area that for history was much more aligned with Hungarian interests. And on the other side, much more with Balkan or Ottoman interests. Mountains divide people. And think about places that you might know of in history that have been kind of like mountain people. You think about things about maybe things that look like this, right? Look nice, look placid, placid, look fun. These are places that all through the world, if you get mountain passes with mountain villages, you tend to get people with excessive hospitality. You tend to get one with long-standing blood feuds. You tend to get one where there's this air of mystery. This area of the world, the Balkans has long been known as a place where stories of mystery were told. It was true in the Roman Empire, for example, where the northern part of Greece was known as this area where mysterious, horror-filled things happened. Think about other places around the world where you get mountain villages, like the Pashtun Wali in Afghanistan, or the Hatfields and the McCoys in some place like, like Kentucky, right? Same sorts of things happen here. An Romanian, as far as the language, is a really interesting one. For a long time, it wasn't understood where it came from. We now know that it's a Romance language. It was one that was created during the time of the Roman Empire, but with a whole bunch of different fusions into it. If you want to say yes, for example, in Romanian, you say da, which is Slavic. So Romanian is infused with Turkish, with Slavic, with... Romance languages with all sorts of them, so that it's truly a very unique language. This is an area that's known its own share of true tales of horror. This is one from a Bulgarian Khan, just a little bit south of the Danube River. Khan Krum, who after the Battle of Pliska, I was going to say, it's either Pliska or Nicopolis, can't remember, turned the Byzantine emperor who he was fighting, took his skull, turned it into a wine goblet and used that to drink out of for the rest of his reign, passed down from Bulgarian Khan to Bulgarian Khan until it was lost. Another one, in the Battle of Clydon, Basil II, Basil the Bulgar Slayer, decided he was going to make the country of Bulgaria disappear. And the way he did it was he captured around 30,000 prisoners after the Battle of Clydon. What he did with those prisoners would be definitely not with the Geneva Conventions today. Out of every hundred, he took 99 of them and gouged out both of their eyes. 
On one out of the hundred, he gouged out only one of their eyes, told them to march back to Bulgaria, where they rose again as a nation 800 years later. This was a sense, the way that they dealt with problems. Romania itself has its own tales of horror. You may, you may know about Nicolae Ceausescu and the Romanian case of orphans, right? One of the true deep tales of horror in the 20th century. This is the dude himself, kind of a communist dictator. When he was executed in, I think it was Christmas Day, 1989, the firing squad didn't even wait until they were in, in firing position. They just started shooting at him. And today, you can see where Nikolai Ceausescu was assassinated. Anybody know who this guy is? I'll be very impressed if you do. I'm impressed with you anyway, but I'd be more impressed. This is Bella Lugosi, the original I am Dracula. This is him. He was a fighter in World War I, where he fought for the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was wounded, we think, three times. He had three different wound medals. So this was not uncommon in World War I. The Serbian Army, for example, had a casualty rate in World War I of 120%. This only makes sense if you consider that you can be wounded multiple times and be counted different times. We don't see casualty rates like that in the 21st century, 120%. The first zombie film comes out of World War I also. J'accuse, I accuse. This is something where the French dead from World War I would come back as zombies to, to warn people not to forget about their sacrifices. So this is an area and a time that have a whole lot of horror behind them. But let's talk about Dracula. This is a map of 15th century Europe. What you'll probably notice is that the western half kind of looks sort of familiar, right? You've got France, a little bit skinnier, but it's still France. You've got the pieces of Spain look like they can just link together, and they will. England and Scotland, yeah, they pretty much look the same, but everything else pretty much looks very, very different. Sizes on this map that you see? Anything that really stands out to you? What do we think? A lot of Poland. Basically Poland. Yes. Um, the country of Poland, which is that big blue one on the map, looks very, very, very different. Poland at one point was a very effective counterweight to the Russians. And in the 16th century, the 17th century, during the Smutnoya Vremia, the time of troubles in Russian history, Poland actually managed to stick a couple of Polish czars on the throne. Poland was the superior power of the two, not Russia. This is 1400. There's the area we're going to be talking about, Wallachia. This is it in 1500. You will notice that Wallachia is gone. Any other big changes? Any other big surprises? <laughs> Germany, there was no Germany. There were Germanies. In both of these, Germany is a country until 1871. It is a very, very new country. What had happened beforehand is this area kind of in the middle, that's the Holy Roman Empire. And it's out of this that Germany comes from. 
But Germany itself as a country is a lot like Italy. They form very late, very, very late. And this is, of course, Europe today, uh, notwithstanding issues of, you know, what Ukraine looks like today. So you can see that these look very different. This is why we call this region the Shatterbelt, is that this part of Central Europe here changes a lot. 100 years, completely new, new boundaries. I don't think 100 years from now they're going to be all that different, but I don't know. I won't be around to be wrong, right? When we think about Dracula, we think about our modern ideas and we, we lose a little bit. Dracula's granddad was, his name was Mircea the Elder. And you can see that Wallachia is in this spot in between Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. It's never good to be between two big empires, never ever, because you're going to get played off of each other pretty often. Mircea the Elder wanted to make an alliance with Hungary. And so what happened was the Hungarians wanted some sort of a guarantee that they weren't going to betray him. And today, what would we do to show that you were really, really loyal to the Hungarian alliance that you just signed? Maybe to give them money, maybe to give them guns, maybe give them soldiers. Back then, they had a different way of doing it. What Mircea the Elder did was he was given as a prisoner to the Hungarian crown. So his dad, if he had managed to betray him, he knew that his son, who was the heir to his kingdom, was going to have something really bad happen to him. This was a good way to seal an alliance back then, right? You don't want anything bad to happen to your only heir. This is him. We have a better picture of him because he lasted a little bit longer. The same thing happens to Vlad II. So he's given as, again, a captive. When we think of a captive, we think about someone in prison. It's not that way at all. He was in a fortress. He was learning Hungarian. He was learning about the Roman Catholic faith, probably. And one of the things that he did was he took a signed oath to fight against the Turks. To do this, he joined this order called the Order of the Dragon. In so happening, he gets this sobriquet for a last name, Dracul, which means the dragon. Vlad Dracula, well, Vlad Dracul, Dracula means son of Dracul, had three kids. Mircea, who was the eldest son. Vlad II, who was Vlad the Impaler, or Vlad III, I'm sorry, who was the person that we know of as Dracula and Radu the Handsome. Radu the Handsome is his younger brother. Vlad II is now in this Order of the Dragon. So one of the things that makes Dracula so interesting is that dragon can be, um, I guess, interpreted two different ways. It can either be dragon or devil. So when we talk about Dracula, it could either be son of the dragon or Vlad, son of the devil. Dracul comes from this house of Draculesti. They had a big, big feud with this other house, the house of Donesti. These two different dynasties were feuding for pretty much the entirety of Wallachian history, one trying to get the throne from the other one, and it went back and forth. When Dracula was made a captive, though. He wasn't made a captive of the Hungarians. He was made a captive of the Ottomans. At this time, the Ottomans were the superior power to the Hungarians. 
And Vlad Dracul wanted to make an alliance with the Turks. Never mind that he made his way in the Order of the Dragon. Remember, this is all about betrayal. So Dracula, we believe, is put into this old Ottoman castle. He learns Turkish here. He learns Greek. He learns the ways of war. And he also learns the ways of Ottoman justice. One of the more common ways that the Ottomans would execute a prisoner was through impalement. Impalement was a really, really nasty business done only for people that had done severe crimes, crimes against humanity, uh, crimes against, say, for example, something very serious, something like sedition. The way it was done was not super pretty. The pike was put through one hole, came out the other one. person had no sedation, and they were alive until... Well, usually until sepsis took them or blood loss. It was a very slow, very painful process. Dracula watched this, and he learned. Here's the tale of the tape. Dracula has three reigns. One is very short. Then for a while, he goes away, comes back and rules for about six years. Then he comes back a third time and has a very short rule. Uh, what do we notice about his life and his last tenure as Voivode of Wallachia, as the leader of Wallachia? They coincide, don't they? So do you think that his last time in office ended peacefully? No. <laughs> Nobody's time ended peacefully at that time, especially not his. <sighs> Anything else that you find interesting about him? He speaks a lot of languages. He speaks Turkish. And at one point, being able to speak Turkish is going to come in really handy to him. <coughs> Excuse me. The last one is that he converted religions. This was extremely rare during his time. Extremely rare. And the people that were living in 15th century Wallachia were not super fond of this. <coughs> Sorry, throat's getting a little dry. And they thought that if you converted from the true faith, which in Wallachia was orthodoxy, to Roman Catholicism, that your body would never know rest because you gave up the true faith and you would come back as a vampire. So it was from this that Dracula is known as a vampire in Central Europe. It's because he converted religions. It's not because he was brutal. It's not because he drank blood. It's because he converted religions. So his first rule. First rule comes, and it's pretty darn short. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, the person in charge of Wallachia at the time, his name is Vladislav II. We have no pictures of him. He's ruling for a couple of months, and he goes off to war with the Hungarians to go fight the Moldavians, who are a group of people just to the north. The Turks say, hey... While he's gone, Dracula, why don't we let you out of captivity? You can go take the throne, and then you can cement power. Because we all know that the Hungarians are going to win this battle, and they're going to be indisposed up there. So he does this. Rules for a couple of months. They lose, and then he comes back, and Vladislav II wants his throne back. Dracula says, oh, crap, and then he has to disappear. I'm just going to take a drink of water real fast. 
Thank you so much. Refreshing. So Vladislav comes back. He says, this isn't good. And then he disappears and goes back and looks for someone to hide with. And again, hangs out with the Turks. This is what Wallachia looks like in the 15th century. If we kind of zoom in on it. You'll see some of these cities show up um, when we talk about what Dracula did. Targoviste, which is probably, if anything's the capital of Wallachia, it's that. This was not a super duper powerful kingdom with a whole bunch of different things. I guess it'd be considered a capital just because no place else was. So Dracula's in captivity for a while, again, with the Turks. What happens at this time is the Donestes, who were the leading powers, were looking for blood. They really didn't like the fact that Dracula got out. They couldn't really take revenge on the Turks because the Turks had this super powerful empire and a super powerful army. So they took revenge on Vlad II and his older brother, Mircea the Elder. The things they did to them when they found them were hinted at. We know that Mircea was blinded and buried alive. And we don't know what happened to Mircea the Elder, but we know that he was executed in an extremely cruel manner. At this point, shortly afterwards, the Turks once again let Dracula go and say, you know what, go get your revenge. And he does. For doing this, Dracula blames not only the Donesti house, Vladislav II, and the people that were in charge, but he also starts to blame the Wallachian people. And in so doing, creates his own form of impalement that he's known for because he really goes out there with it. He goes and does it for just about anything. The stories of cruelty that are known by Dracula are they're difficult for someone who really is looking behind the scenes to know what to make of them. Here's one reason why. This is from a woodcut. This is a German woodcut. And one of the things that Dracula tried to do to gain revenue was he tried to siphon the money out of these group of people called the Transylvanian Saxons. German inhabitants that had a whole bunch of money tried to get some to fund wars against first the Hungarians and then later the Turks. But the Germans had a printing press. And at this time, it was all the rage to do things like this that were essentially tabloid journalism. They would sell very well. You know, pictures are really big, and the pictures are really big because most people at the time were illiterate. And this is a story about how Dracula would order whole villages full of people executed, and he would sit there, that's him eating and drinking, and he was actually dipping his bread into the blood at the time. Is it true? Who knows, right? Who's telling the story? The Germans, the people that he was taking the money from were the ones telling it. They were the ones that ran the printing press. Keep in mind that he started doing this stuff pretty late in his life, right? So even if you're saying you haven't chosen a major yet, remember, you can still do wonderful things, right? <coughs> Here are some stories told about Dracula. Then I'm going to tell you the fly in the ointment about them. 
One of the first stories told about Dracula and his cruelty was that there was a group of emissaries from the Ottoman Empire that came to visit him. The Ottoman Empire made its emissaries wear hats. Dracula said, why don't you take off your hats? This is what we do in Wallachia. They said, we don't take off our hats for anybody. <clears throat> so Dracula orders a couple of people to grab them, take a mallet and a spike, and to spike the hats into them, executing them, and of course, so that they would never take off their hats for anybody. At some point, Vlad decides that the Ottoman Empire is the true enemy, not the Hungarians. We're not exactly sure when. Sources, again, are pretty confused. But Vlad also knows that calling down the Ottoman Empire is a really, really bad idea, and he would never be able to win a war with them outright. So he begins a series of guerrilla campaigns to make this thing happen. He has a couple of these night rides, rides at night, where Dracula and a couple of very loyal retainers would go through and mostly raiding along the Danube River, which was kind of the super highway of the 15th century Central European world. Burning villages, destroying everything, taking crops, whatever he could. And at one point, he hears about a place that he thinks the Turkish sultan is in camp, ready to fight. This is where Dracula's famous night raid occurs. Dracula thinks that he sees the tent of the Turkish sultan, Mehmed II, goes to attack him, is dissuaded against doing so by a whole bunch of Ottoman janissaries who are kind of like the elite warriors of the Ottoman Empire, says that he's not going to do it, he can't do it, and he goes back, probably feet away from killing the Ottoman Empire, well, feet away from killing the Ottoman sultan, changing the course of history. He didn't do it. Who knows what the world might have been like if he had not done that. Mehmed II is pretty cheesed at this whole thing for kind of obvious reasons. Uh, Dracula's not playing by the rules. Dracula was a former loyal retainer. So he decides to go into what's that capital, Targoviste, to go get his revenge. Normally I would say you can all read and I would make you do it, but I know that because this is being done on YouTube, I'll read it to you as well. The Sultan's army entered into the area of the impalements, which was two miles long and a mile wide. Uh, modern, I translate them into modern units of measurement. There were large stakes there on which it was said about 20,000 men, women, and children had been spitted, quite a sight for the Turks and the Sultan himself. The Sultan was seized with amazement and said that it was not possible to deprive of his country a man who had done such great deeds, great meaning powerful, not great meaning he was a good man, who had such a diabolical understanding of how to govern his realm and his people. And he said that a man who had done such things was worth much. The rest of the Turks were dumbfounded when they saw the multitude of men on the stakes. There were infants too affixed to their mothers on the stakes and their birds had been made to nest in their entrails. Heavy, heavy stuff. We think 20,000, but we're not entirely sure. A lot of people, regardless. This is one source. Uh, one source, if you ever get one source that's like one data point, you can go with it a whole bunch of different ways. It is possible that this is the true reason that Mehmed II said that Wallachia is not worth the fight. Another one is that 
It was Wallachia. It was not exactly an area with a whole bunch of money or troops behind it. Another one was that he had just gotten and like finished with a couple of wars. He might very well have had extended supply lines. It's difficult to know. It's worth remembering that Wallachia wasn't conquered at this time by either Hungary or the Ottoman Empire because both knew this was an area that was kind of trouble, right? And sometimes when you're an empire, some areas are more trouble than they're worth. So, Dracula's in deep doo-doo. He goes into hiding, goes into Hungary, and says, hey, will you take me back? I want to regain my throne once again because the Turks have taken it over. John Hanyadi says, sure, and then imprisons him. So he gets imprisoned a lot, doesn't he? This time, the Germans say that while he was in prison, he was actually in prison and that he was so cruel that he was impaling birds. So he found a bird. He didn't impale it on a stake. It's difficult to know, and I have a difficult time believing the primary sources, because we do know that at this time, Dracula gets married to a Hungarian princess. I'm thinking that these two stories, there's a little bit of conflict here. Somebody's in prison, but then they marry him to a Hungarian princess. It's during this time that he converts to Roman Catholicism, and it's at this time, like I said before, that the people of Wallachia said, well, anybody that gives up the true faith must be condemned to haunt the earth for the rest of time then. Eventually, he's let out when the Hungarians feel like they have another show of power. This time his reign is really, really short. Gets back to doing his same old stuff, impaling people, causing problems with the Transylvanian Saxons, with those German inhabitants that were there. Has a bad time and we think that he was probably assassinated. What we do know is that Mehmed II was watching a play in Constantinople, and at one point during a very ominous scene, somebody rolled Dracula's head onto the stage so that he could see it, delighting him. The head was impaled outside of the gates of Istanbul. His body... Um, this was the guy he was fighting at the time during his very short reign, Basarab Leota. His body was supposed to be buried at this monastery called Snagov. It's in the middle of a river, but excavations have found no body. Hard to know what that means. Let's talk a little bit about the legacy of Dracula and this whole idea of the vampire culture after this. <sighs> Vampires, we think, actually come out of the Ottoman Empire. It's out of kind of 15th century Ottoman culture that this idea of the vampire comes. This is an excavation of a 17th century Polish grave who we think they thought was a vampire. Do you notice how the person is buried? They have a sickle coming kind of like this out to their neck. The thought back then was that if this vampire attempted to rise from the grave, the sickle would just chop off the head. No more vampire. So this idea of decapitating the vampire was one that goes back a long time in vampire history. This is from a, I believe this is from the Persian Empire. This is a picture of a vampire hunter back then. There were fatwas issued on how to do vampiric hunting at the time. So you can probably tell which one is the vampire there, right? Kind of a, a vampire-werewolf kind of hybrid. 
But this was something that believe, like many parts of Ottoman culture, got infused into the Balkan history. We believe that out of this idea, the vampire came to spread the vampire idea from the Ottoman Empire through the Balkans. And from the Balkans, later into Germany and Poland, and then from there in the 19th century, they became all the rage in England. In the 18th and 19th century, this idea of vampiric literature really begins to take hold. And one of the persons that's really interested in writing a good story about this is Bram Stoker. He writes one about this guy named Count Wampir, W-A-M-P-Y-R. But in the process of doing some research for his book, he finds just a short little tract about this leader, Vlad Dracula, kind of as, as a spur-of-the-moment decision. He says, eh, you know what? I'm going to change the name from Count Wampir to Count Dracula. The actual Vlad III Dracula was never a count, after all. The idea of vampires is really one that takes you wherever you want to go with it. Uh, anybody know what movie this is from? Nosferatu, good, the 1922 silent film. Uh, interesting story about it. Nosferatu was banned in Europe because the estate of Bram Stoker said that it was too much like the story of Dracula. All the prints were destroyed except for some in America because America, I guess, didn't believe in copyright rules back then. So the only reason that this movie still exists are because Americans decided not to destroy them when they were supposed to. Most silent films of the era are gone, right? One of the interesting things about Nosferatu is, first off, this is a vampire, clearly not that attractive, right? Definitely a creepy dude with these long fingernails. And what Dracula brings in his wake is the plague. This is a story about, in Visborg in 1838, a story of the Black Plague. <clears throat> if you know anything about 1922, what had happened just a couple of years before that? Spanish flu. People watching this would have been very, very acutely aware that this was something that they had lived through. The Spanish flu was devastating. It killed more people than the war did, after all, right? But then we've got other ideas. 1931, just nine years later, we get Todd Browning's Dracula, made by Bela Lugosi. Bela Lugosi, his name comes from Lugoy, which was a city in Romania. But he himself was of Hungarian history. So when you hear Dracula talk like this, it's actually a Hungarian accent, which Dracula was never really about Hungary. When we think about Transylvania, Transylvania was a part of Hungary, not a part of the story of Vlad III's life, really, at all. But the story that's told in 1931 is a very different one. This 1931 Dracula is very, very different. He's someone from a faraway country, comes in, and immediately starts seducing women, right? This idea of concerns about immigration is one that's very different in 1930s America than Nosferatu, which was 1922 in Weimar, Germany, the country that just lost World War I. It kind of brings up the idea, where do we get this interest in horror from? Why do we like these stories of spooky things and scary people and people that do truly evil acts? David Cronenberg, who's done a couple of really good horror films in his own light, is kind of like a philosopher of the horror genre. And in it, he says that horror movies and thinking about these acts of cruelties help us deal with the fact that we are all going to die. 
These are ways of us kind of thinking about, in a kind of safe space, the fact that we're all dealing with this mortality of our own, right? Which is what makes the vampire so interesting. The vampire is immortal, right? It's one of those reasons that sometimes people say, like, if you could be a vampire, would you? And a part of me would be like, yeah, living forever? That sounds kind of awesome. Never aging? I mean, drinking blood, I'm not sure how i do that, but everything else sounds perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I left a couple of minutes for questions, so if anybody has any questions, any thoughts, anything, I'd be more than happy to answer them. I might not know, but I could make up something real fast. Question. The question is, what got me into all this? Um, I don't know. I have ADHD, and so I'm really interested in anything for about 10 seconds. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I played a lot of role-playing games as a kid, like Dungeons & Dragons, and the vampire was always the big, bad, scary end boss that you had to fight. So I don't know. Maybe that? Good question. Why are you all here? You must find this interesting too, right? Little, yeah. I, I, I know of them. Uh, yeah, the vampires don't, the sparkling and being out in the sunlight, that's a new part of the genre. But that's the thing about vampires, is every, every place has its own idea as far as what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are, what they can and can't do. Most of them drink blood. They usually can't be out in sunlight, but sometimes they can. Um, in Nosferatu, nobody ever talks about putting a stake through the heart at all. That's a 1931 creation. In 15th century Romania, they used to purposely bury them by the side of the road so that if anybody goes by, they could see if they were to pop up. They thought other groups of people that might potentially be vampires, uh, besides people that gave up the true faith, were also people that committed suicide. I like answering questions that nobody asked, I guess. Um, we'll go here and then here. Question. Do you know where, like, the garlic thing comes from? Like, if you put garlic out, vampires won't come around? The question is, do I know where the garlic thing came from? I think that that was a creation of 17th century Poland and Germany, but I'm not 100% sure. That's the earliest I can trace it back to, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't something there before what we know about the Balkans is we don't have a lot of good primary sources. So I believe that's a, a Central European thing from Poland and Germany. But if I find out, I will, maybe on the YouTube thing, I'll put it in the comments. So good question. Uh, then we had a question over here, I think. Oh, cool. Um. It was from Time Life, though. It wasn't like a big scholarly thing. And they said that sometimes uh, they put stakes in dead bodies so they wouldn't get out of the ground, prevent them from, from vampires from getting out of the ground. They were supposed to be pinned to the ground. Like, and, uh, and also, I did, uh, I don't know if these are come from myths, but there's a lot of different like vampire films from other countries where the vampires are really different. And in Asia, they have hopping vampires. They do. They can't move sideways, yeah. And I saw this Italian film. It wasn't that good, but they had a scene where the vampire becomes a giant praying mantis. And huh. A bunch of insects go together and become a 
there some mythologies where they you know, it also became an owl not a bat or there's some mythologies where it becomes other animals uh, no couple of different parts of that the first one about the staking I read a Turkish study as far as like where vampires come from and they said that when it came to the Balkans one of the things about the Balkans is a lot of it has a very low water table so um, in spots where specifically along like the Danube River if you try to bury something it'll come up kind of like New Orleans today how all the burials have to be above ground so the thought then they couldn't build large stone mausoleums it's kind of a 19th century thing what they did is they would stake them all on the ground just as a matter of course as far as turning into different animals yes um, in Nosferatu for example uh, Dracula turns into a whole bunch of rats and other areas in the book Dracula he turns into like mist form and then bat form so yeah uh, definitely praying mantis is an unusual one I haven't heard that one before but Dario Argento movie, you know? Oh, Dario Argento. It's not, it's not a very good movie, but it's kind of, has some cool stuff in it, though. Argento is so much fun. Suspiria is one of my favorites. His own daughter's in it, though, and she looks like she's about, like, 35, and she's playing this teenage <laughs> But, uh, uh, but yeah, so, uh, oh, thank you. Thank I you. Enjoyed the lecture. Thank you so much. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, sir. So we saw <clears throat> in the uh, presentation, and also I've just seen like other pictures of it online, where there's like cages, or in the presentation there was the sickle right above the grade. Was that like a common thing? Was there just like a pure superstition of people rising from the dead, or was it like also extra insurance against like grave robbers? It's a good question. Um, we know that in 19th century England, the fear was a premature burial. And people built these really elaborate gravestones and monuments specifically so that they would not be buried prematurely because we know it did happen periodically. Um, they had people that there was like a bell, you could ring it. So if there was a ring above that, um, there was even somebody, geez, I can't remember who, but they were specifically not able to be buried until 100 years after they died. So they just kept them like in like a, like a cabinet. So this fear of premature burial was very, very real for 19th century England. For other places, I'm not sure about. As far as how common was this, this was the first grave that they ever found that the sickle was like this. So I don't think it was very common. But who knows, just because we haven't found that many, you know, that doesn't mean there aren't more out there. Other thoughts, other comments, anything I can help you with? All right, well, let's give Jason a big hand. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming. Let me just leave you with one thing. Um, if you're interested in reading more about Dracula or watching some of, their, some of the films, we have some on display over here. And then Monday, we're going to put out several things for Halloween. So feel free to come in, check out a scary book or something. Um, final last thing is I'm the um, director of global education. And if any of you are interested in going overseas this summer and learning a foreign language, there's a fully funded, that means they pay for everything, airplane, food, everything, if you want to go and study a critical language. And a critical language is languages that the U.S. government needs more people to speak. 
So like they have plenty of people who speak Spanish, but we need people with Arabic. A lot of you already know, Azerbaijani, Bangla, Chinese, Hindi, Indonesian, Japanese, Korean. You want to go to Korea this summer? That fully funded. Um, Persian, which would be um, Iran. Iran. I don't think they send you there. Portuguese, that's new, so Brazil. Punjabi, what country is Punjabi? India. And yeah, India, yeah, Punjabi. India, yeah. What's pa Urdu is Pakistan, Urdu right? Is um, Russian, I think they stopped that one because obviously what's going on in Ukraine, right? So <laughs> I don't know if you want to go to Russia. Um, so Jason's been to Russia, by the way. So I have. Yeah. I lived there for a while. But that was um, before now, yeah. Uh, I've been to some pretty gross places in America. I don't know. It's, it was um, fun. There's Swahili, Turkish, and Urdu, so there's plenty of them. So if you're interested, let me know. You can just take a picture of it. It's a scholarship. You, just, you can fill it out, and I can help you with it. They really, really want community college students because they don't have the chance to go anywhere um, compared to maybe students at a undergraduate like at UIC or something, you know, a lot of kids study abroad. At community colleges, less than 1% ever study abroad. So if you, you know, want to try this, they really, you have a good chance of getting in for doing it. And they give you a job with the government when you get done, whether that's good news or bad news, I don't know. But if you wanted to work in, like as a diplomat or something or an embassy, they give you first choice. They, they will set you up with a job when you're done. So let me know or just take a picture of it with your camera, most of you guys do on your way out. All right. Thank you again. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much, everybody.